Welcome, all you zombies, to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. The first article on thisiscommonsense.com this week was something funny happened on the way to a quorum. We started our week with a good title, and you and I are, are uh, title snobs, maybe, or something. Uh, we love a good title. And uh, in fact, uh, as you know, I sometimes I can't write anything until I've titled it. And of course, how can you title it before you've written it? And it's why sometimes I send you a title and, and a script and you, you say, well, this title doesn't work at all. And I, as I always remind you, well, that's because I wrote the title before I knew what I was writing. So, but it's somehow it goes at the, at the top of the page. So, but we had in, in the, the same way that that's completely backwards thinking, which I've become wed to in this own, it only hurts me. So, Nobody can take real offense. The week began completely uh, topsy-turvy, backwards, because we were talking about a funny thing happened on the way to a quorum, a quorum in the House of Representatives, because last week ended with Thomas Massey from Kentucky, a congressman who's part of the Freedom Caucus and uh, kind of a Rand Paul, Ron Paul type guy, believes in limited government, believes in the Constitution, doesn't think it's okay to just pass a $2.2 trillion bill, biggest bill in U.S. history, without there being a vote. So when it was brought up and they, you know, it was on the, I think, what's called the consent calendar, meaning if no one objects, it passes, and there's no recorded vote whatsoever. So Massey didn't like that. He thought there should be a recorded vote. And he said, I object. I want there to be a recorded vote. I don't want our republic, our constitution to die in the darkness of no recorded vote. And I'm paraphrasing, uh, in an empty chamber uh, in the Capitol. And so he mandated by refusing to go along that they get enough votes at the Capitol to have a quorum that's half, so it's uh, 218 people at least. And that was dangerous, we found out. It was terrible. He was a rotten guy who was risking people's lives. Now, previously, we've talked about how it makes good sense, even outside of this pandemic, it makes good sense to allow people who are in Congress to vote from their home district. If, they're, if they can't be there, why not pass a rule that says, hey, we can, we can vote from wherever we are, electronically, online, whatever works. I know they can figure it out. People do it all the time. Um, and that's what Congress should be doing. In fact, I'd like to see them vote from home on a regular basis where they're closer to us and further away from the lobbyist and from the swamp in Washington, D.C. But in this case, they weren't, you know, they hadn't done that. They hadn't set up such a rule. And uh, who knows, Massey might have objected to that. And so all we heard, I woke up uh, Friday morning and was getting a cup of coffee and, and uh, you know, heard the, the news and oh, I just, they were just ravaging uh, the reputation of Tom Massey. And, but I couldn't figure out why. I hadn't heard what had happened yet. And they went on and on. I asked my wife, what did he do? I mean, could we stop the lynching for just a second so I could find out what he's done? And, uh, well, it turns out this is what he, he had done. And 
the commentary on Monday was not about defending his decision to object at this point. I think a reasonable person could have said, look, they probably won't have a recorded vote anyway because they don't want the American people to truly be represented, to truly be uh, empowered as citizens to control their government. They want to, they want government to be arm's length. Uh, and they want, you know, the little people, you and I, not to have too much say so. And the less knowledge we have, the less say so and the less accountability there's going to be. And they want zero accountability. And that's the point that Massey in effect was making is that this is a big cover up so that nobody, you, you spend all this money and nobody is really responsible. But as I pointed out in the commentary on Monday, once he's done it and they've got to come back, boy, can they show him up. Boy, can they pound him by coming to the Capitol and holding a recorded vote to show Tom Massey that they are transparent representatives who care about the public. They just didn't want to risk getting the coronavirus, and that's understandable. So now that you've forced us to be back here at the Capitol, we're going to vote on the record, as of course we should, and then we're going to wag our finger at you all day and night long. But instead, they come back to the Capitol and they prove Thomas Massey 110% correct. Because they come back, they take that tremendous risk, and we can debate how much of it a risk, but hey, I'm, I'm willing to give them. It's a risk. I don't want to run. I don't want to go to the Capitol because I don't even want to go to the Capitol when there's not the coronavirus swirling around the hallways. But I can understand that. But once they are back for our House of Representatives to purposely refuse to go on the record, it is the most spineless thing I can imagine. And it tells me that Thomas Massey was 100% correct. Instead of being a no good who forced people to do something terrible, he was the guy standing up to say, wait a second, your government is out of control. It doesn't believe in any controls. It doesn't believe in any transparency. And so if we don't know, I mean, in a year, two years, if it turns out there's all kinds of crap in this bill, and we know there is plenty of that, uh, but as it comes out and the public becomes fully aware of it, you're going to hear congressmen say, oh, no, I didn't vote for that. And there's going to be no record, no way to tell who really voted for it and who didn't, except with one, one exception. We're going to know that Thomas Massey, whether you like him or don't like him, is person enough not just man enough, we're in, a, we're in a new modern world, person enough with decency and commitment to his constituents, the citizens he works for, he went on the record. And he's the only congressman who went on the record. Now, he did say, and of course, I don't want to take away from any of that, but he did say that Justin Amash also voted against the bill with him, and there were a few others saying nay. But once again, no one's on record. They're just, they have to say what they've said. You know, that's interesting because uh, what I read, I, I wondered about Amash. 
because um, my sense was that he would have uh, voted no. And I wondered about other Freedom Caucus people and how they had voted, but it was not uh, reported in my Washington Post. And of course, if it's not in the Post, it can't be, it can't be true. It can't be real. No, but it, it is, uh, it's the sort of thing where, you know, and, and I've had a back and forth with someone when I posted the uh, commentary on Facebook. Of course, you can, you can get us on Facebook as well, uh, Common Sense with Paul Jacob website. This is commonsense.com. But uh, someone who basically, you know, all they could talk about was what a terrible person Tom Massey was and how, why do we even need to know how they would have voted? <laughs> why do we even need to know? Why should we learn anything? Why should knowledge even exist? Let's just, let's just walk like robots and be told exactly what to do. It seems like it would be, would be slightly easier but they might not tell us to walk in the, in the right robot manner, so. You know how in a minority position you are when you can put the ratio at one in 435, right? Yes, yes, but you know, when you see those votes that are 430 something to one or two or three, you know that almost always, if not always, it's the one, two or three who are correct, in my view. Um, and, and the funny thing is, I think that's the way it turns out down the road. For instance, this is very popular right now. If it had been a close vote and people had voted against it, the people in this, the district, when their money shows up in their account and, you know, they're supposed to be $2,400 that's going to show up in my bank account. Um, you know, that's, it's not a kick in the teeth. And so the, the idea is, hey, this is pretty popular stuff, and it is right now. TARP was maybe not so unpopular the moment it was done because people, oh, we, we've got this emergency. But over time, it became very unpopular. And look at the Iraq war. The, the vote to go to war in Iraq was pretty popular. It won by a big margin. But then years later, it wasn't so popular. Think about if the Iraq war vote they had said, oh, we're going to go to war, but we don't have the courage to even put our vote on the record. It would mean that that popular vote that turned unpopular, we wouldn't know anything. So this is, uh, this is no way to run a republic. And it is the way our republic is being run day after day, day in, day out. Um, you know, all the canaries in our little coal mine have long since passed away, um, and and we gotta we gotta wake up. And when when I hear people, otherwise sane people, arguing that because it's a catastrophe and an emergency and a pandemic, that we don't need to know. We'll just let government tell us what's what. Boy, that just does not sound like America. But the whole thing is really weird and pathetic in another way. I mean, it's about the coronavirus. It's a panic about the, the pandemic. So it's understandable. But I, I, I devised this two-panel cartoon, which I never drew up, so it didn't happen. But in panel one, it's the people crying, we're afraid, save us. And in the second panel, it's politicians saying, I know, let's bail out the banks. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're concerned about jobs. That's their number one concern, I think. But what people 
might miss because they're very slick. It's their jobs that they're concerned about. We're in an election year. Everybody wants to look busy and act like they're helping in this crisis. And, and so I think a lot of this is how do we not prime the pump, but just send a tidal wave, a gusher of cash to get the economy going, to make sure that people don't have catastrophic problems. Um, it's the sort of thing where, as we mentioned a, a week or so ago, uh, this is a war where we're not really asking for any real sacrifices other than, you know, not go outside. That turns out to be a, you know, and not go see your friends, turns out to be a, a bigger sacrifice than people might have known. Um, but, but in terms of, you know, taxes going up or, or, you know, suffering, the politicians want to alleviate that. And I'm, I'm convinced they want to make sure their jobs, if their jobs are threatened, you're going to get some quick action in Washington. When it's just our jobs, well, you might get a little sleight of hand. And, and of course, um, the last time we had a crisis, 2008, it seems like your cartoon would have been right on the money. Um, we've got a big problem. <laughs> Let's bail out the banks. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, I've had uh, friends who have businesses, some that have one employee or two or three, uh, who've already gotten contacted by their bank to say that if you want to take out a loan, uh, you can, you know, basically you have a good shot to take out that loan as long as you don't fire yourself or your other one or two employees that's going to turn out to be a grant. And so in essence, whether you need that help or not, you're, you have every incentive to go get that money. And then it turns out to be a grant. And, and think about it. You, you don't do it and your competitor does. Maybe he's able to do more advertising or more, you know, hire someone new with that money. It's, it's, uh, this is a, a, big, bold program with very little details and, and I think very little thought on their part or consciousness on ours as to what's, what's this going to look like down the road and what are going to be the disincentives. Um, because sometimes when you offer money for doing X, people who wouldn't otherwise do X decide to do it. And that's not always their best move. Um, so, you know, there'll be all kinds of, of uh, changes that come from this that are unforeseen. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because Tuesday's script was Coburn's terms, and it was about the passing over the weekend of Tom Coburn, representative in Oklahoma, uh, then a, a U.S. senator. He served three terms, pledged to serve no more than three terms, left when he was supposed to, uh, when he said he would. Stayed out for four years, decided to run for the U.S. Senate, pledged to serve only two terms. And in his second term, he discovered he had cancer, uh, left early, and uh, died over the weekend. But he so reminds me of a Thomas Massey uh, that you know we kind of talked about as, as Thomas Massey was fighting his fight. Unfortunately, uh, Tom Coburn was losing his battle with cancer. And uh, not many politicians that I will salute, um, you know, obviously, sorry, any, anybody 
passes away. Um, but but uh, Coburn, really a, uh, a heck of a guy. And it's not as if I agreed with him on every issue. I liked him on taxes and on, on spending and on debt. But mainly, I liked him on honesty and straightforwardness. Um, and was, you know, was trashed in the media a lot. Uh, uh, but in the end, I think won a lot of converts, even if they never agreed with his positions, they realized this guy was for real. And, and he was a man of his word, struck up a, a good relationship with Barack Obama. Uh, and I think even the, the media, kind of the, the national press corps, which I kind of view as a, you know, uh, a, a gang of, of uh, not very savory uh, folks, uh, I think gave him some begrudging respect. But it's interesting, he voted for the TARP bailout back in the day. And I was very surprised. And the story is that the head of the Bank of Oklahoma flew to Washington to meet with him and to plead with him to vote for the TARP bailout, that the alternative would crush the economy and so on and so on. So you know, when, when there are emergencies and catastrophes and crises, um, even a lot of, I think, very good people, uh, they want to do the right thing. They, you know, and sometimes I think uh, ideology gets tossed out the window. Sometimes that's probably a good thing. Sometimes that's not such a good thing. I mean, we have principles for a reason, and that is because sometimes it's easy to hedge a little bit when you want to. Um, so uh, it, it's interesting. And, and again, it shows that Tom Coburn was not a saint, uh, wasn't the greatest man who ever lived, uh, but he was a man. He was for real. He told it the way he saw it um, and was just a breath of fresh air in Washington. And I think that the thing that I mentioned in the script and it mentioned a couple of different uh, little stories, but I, uh, one of the things I remember is the Washington Post uh, somewhat uh, poo-pooing his accomplishment where he had, uh, at, he had basically advanced, I believe, a hundred different amendments to bottle up the agriculture expenditure. And he comes from a district that's a, considered an ag district in Muskogee, Oklahoma. And, uh, and Muskogee being the big urban center and the, the rest of it being, uh, uh, you know, more rural and farm country. But he held up the appropriations because there was so much waste and he ended up cutting $150 million. And the Washington Post derisively said, ah, that's chicken feed. And that is how the Washington Post views $150 million of our money that has <clears throat> been taken out of, our, of what we've earned to protect us, to protect our liberties, to defend the country, to do all the things that government ought to do. And, and yet when someone shows that there's just huge waste, they don't seem to give a damn. And, and so that was a very instructive lesson. It's one thing for you know, the other side to poo-poo it, but for the paper of record in Washington, D.C. to basically say cutting $150 million of what they could not possibly, as they didn't in their editorial, 
call needed stuff, but instead to just dismiss it as, oh, it's not enough money to worry about. Um, it also, uh, it reminds me to jump back to the Monday's uh, commentary about Massey. It was interesting to me that the Washington Post in describing him said that, quote, the Republican from Northern Kentucky has frequently voted no on issues large and small, and we put this next part in italics just so people would hear it, even against the wishes of GOP leaders. Can you imagine that? Someone casting a vote, a no vote, when his party leadership had, had told him to vote yes? What kind of chutzpah do these people have? I mean, my goodness. Uh, but that's, that's the way a Thomas Massey is viewed on a regular basis. Justin Amash, if he would have pulled away from Trump on an issue that, that the left didn't like, they would have savaged him in the same way. Instead, he's okay with them. He's okay with me because he stands for what he believes in. That's why Massey's okay with me. That's why Coburn is okay. And they're more than okay, because I agree with them on a lot of stuff, and they stand up like people who have some courage. But it's why people like, uh, like uh, uh, Ralph Nader is kind of okay to me. I disagree with them on all kinds of things. I'm not saying his agenda is okay, but he says what he believes. Um, it's why even in the Democratic field, I have more respect for Bernie Sanders, who's a socialist maybe more. Maybe more, maybe more the C word, but at least he's somewhat forthright about what he actually believes in and isn't just, you know, reading the latest poll and trying to, you know, enrich himself by whatever he has to say or do. Um, anyway, we lost a, uh, a statesman uh, with Coburn, and I don't say that lightly. And for Wednesday's script, we don't even... We just have to drive up, and I'm going to, I can't think of what the highway is. It's not 40, it's the, it's the turnpike, but we just have to go to Tulsa, not far from Muskogee. And in Tulsa, there was an event that, well, the whole world talked about. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. The whole world might have talked about it had the shooter, instead of being stopped by a citizen who was armed and who shot the shooter to death. Had that not happened, the shooter might have killed a bunch of people, and then we would have all heard about it. Instead, what happened, here's another pretty much unheard case of someone using a gun to protect life and limb, and in a very successful way. We're constantly led to believe, oh, that never done. It's only the police who can use firearms. And uh, a really, really, uh, uh, you know, great story in the sense, you know, somebody's dead, so it's, it's not as great as, you know, we'd, we'd like it never to have occurred. But this woman, it was outside a marijuana dispensary, uh, and uh, this woman had, had opened fire. And luckily, someone was armed, had a concealed carry permit, and uh, whipped out that gun and, and stopped the woman from shooting uh, at people across the, the shopping center and so on. Um, these, these incidents have happened. There's also been cases where 
you know, it, it ends like the Siloam Springs. I may have the, that, the name of that town slightly off in Texas where the church and the guy, you know, the guy had a uh, AR-15 and was shooting up the church and so on. Um, he had several weapons. Well, he got stopped by a guy who had an AR-15. And the, the guy who stopped him and killed him before he could kill more people said, if he didn't have an AR-15, he's not sure he would have gone after him because he wouldn't have had the firepower to protect himself. The media a lot of times misses that because unfortunately, much of the mainstream media is in on the, on the game. They're, they're not referees, they're playing. And they're playing for uh, gun control, for universal health care. As we have said repeatedly, Tim, uh, the media is, you know, we, we jokingly sometimes say, and you see more and more people uh, saying this in, in political circles, uh, talking about the Democrats in the media, and they're saying, oh, but I repeat myself. Uh, but the truth is, the mainstream media, for the most part, is to the left of the Democratic Party. They didn't want Bernie Sanders to win, not because they disagree with his policy views, but because he would have committed the ultimate sin, they think, and that is losing an election. And it's also the ultimate sin of actually having to put their ideas down explicitly, kind of like on Monday's commentary. Because, yes. I mean, they would have had to actually come out, are you for socialism or against socialism? What is it you actually are for? Yes, and they, they might have seen the issues they like best defeated. Um, you know, Al Gore arguably would have been president in 2000. I know everybody remembers the butterfly ballot in, in Florida, but he also lost West Virginia and was one of the first Democrats in decades and decades to lose West Virginia. And he lost West Virginia because of the assault weapons ban and because of the gun control measures that the Clinton-Gore administration had pushed. Um, and so after that, Democrats tended to pull back, but the media continued to push the gun control narrative. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something where, again, I see the media pushing campaign finance reform that's actually deform that would totally upend the whole idea behind the First Amendment, the whole idea behind politicians not being able to legislate what you and I can say. Um, they want to do that with the First Amendment uh, in the same way that politicians who live behind walls, who have armed guards protecting them, will tell you, you don't need any weapon to protect yourself. You can just, the police will take care of you at the same time that they're half the time using our money to fund their own security detail that's very well armed. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not only that they have these views, but their views on how we, the little people, should live, not how they should live. They get to say whatever they want. Uh, the campaign finance reform that I have so often talked about, it was voted for by every single Democratic U.S. Senator in 2016. It was endorsed by Hillary Clinton. It's been endorsed overwhelmingly by the Democratic Party. It is so radical that instead of Congress shall make no law, 
it specifically gives Congress the power to regulate campaign spending. Now, if you think incumbents who win almost all the time anyway, ought to be able to write all the rules for what people can say and how they can say it and how much money they can spend when they say it and how quickly they get to find out who it is that's funding their opponents so that they can put the government screws to them. That's what they want to do on that. And this bill is so radical that they felt it necessary to have one section that says nothing in this amendment shall be construed to abridge freedom of the press. That's how sweeping this is, that they're afraid if they didn't put that in, it might end freedom of the press. And of course, the Washington Post and the New York Times don't mind ending our freedom of, of speech, but they sure as heck don't want to want to end their own in the same way that they don't mind abridging our Second Amendment rights as long as they get to have a security detail that's armed to the teeth. On Friday, you dealt with something a little bit more uh, deadly yet, in a way. I mean, we're fighting the, the coronavirus, and... Uh, we want, and everybody wants hand sanitizer. I like hand sanitizer because you don't need to have water with it if you're away from, if you're away from the house or something, away from a, you know, a sink. Uh, but the, we have a shortages now, and lots of businesses are coming to uh, coming to the fore, trying to actually fix that problem. You know, they're changing their whole production lines to make hand sanitizer, uh, just as the 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 pillow guy is trying to make masks. On Friday, we noticed that there's a problem with the idea of uh, distillers, alcohol, liquor distillers. It's interesting because the government, through different laws, believes it has the authority to order businesses to produce certain things in an in a emergency. But of course, I don't think you ever really have to even go there. You simply offer people the profit incentive. Of course, they want to make money and do what's going to make them popular because it's, it's real people who need the hand sanitizer. We don't want to catch the virus. We don't want to die. We don't want our loved ones to die. So there's every incentive for, for business, private enterprise, to do the right thing. Um, I, don't think, you know, I don't think we have to mandate it and send the troops in to take over companies. We simply have to say, hey, would you do this? And we will pay you. But what's interesting is again and again, the FDA regulations are getting in the way or other regulations. And as we've pointed out, these regulations, even when they're thrown aside because they're stupid, we solve the problems and the catastrophe ends and then they come back into force. And I think that no regulation that gets tossed aside during this pandemic should go back into force until the Congress has voted it back into force. Not the regulatory agency, the Congress, our representatives. And I know they're not really our representatives. They just pretend they are. But it's better than nothing. So let's get them on the record. And let's make it a recorded vote, not a voice vote. Um, but we have the problem of denatured alcohol. and uh, And what happened in prohibition <clears throat> is that they wanted any sort of alcohol that was going to be used uh, for the numerous uses other than to chug it uh, and get drunk. They wanted it to taste bad, to smell bad. And in fact, they poisoned it. 
And there were people during Prohibition who died from drinking alcohol that was purposely poisoned by the federal government's laws. Uh, and so, you know, they, they have this now to where they want the sanitizer to be poisonous so that people won't drink it. Well, it's, you know, we, we pointed out these companies, it would destroy their machinery to, to change it over to this where they then couldn't go back without refitting the machinery and readjusting everything. I know in the state of uh, Virginia and in other states, they are, you know, saying that liquor stores are essential uh, enterprises and that marijuana uh, dispensaries are essential enterprises. And I, I'm not quibbling with them. I'm just saying that it's kind of important for people, I guess, to, to get their, their booze or to, to get a smoke. And the government thinks that's okay, but then they're scared to death that somebody is going to somehow use the hand sanitizer. I mean, you know, even people who can't go to the liquor store, they can usually get someone else to go to the liquor store for them. And, and as we pointed out in the commentary, you know, kids have been known to drink stuff that's really terrible for them to get high in some way. So this is not just a, uh, hey, you ought not to do that. It's dangerous. It's real dangerous. But the reality, too, is that in this day and age, it's, it, it's usefulness that never really existed because it was a stupid idea to begin with. But if it ever had any usefulness, it would have been during a time in which alcohol wasn't available. So it was all somebody could get. Now, alcohol is pretty ubiquitous. And the truth is, it's ubiquitous even for people who aren't 21. So, you know, it just is ridiculous that we have these mandates that is slowing down the production of a substance that is life-saving. Um, so it, and, and we see this again and again in the economy. The private sector is gonna, is, is trying to get things done. And all of a sudden the government sector is seeing all the ways they're in the way. And sometimes they're doing the right thing and getting the heck out of the way, but other times they're not. And, and this is something that, we're at thisiscommonsense.com. We are going to kick whatever it is and take names. Um, and that's something that I think we need to do broadly. Where did we change the law? Because the law was an ass and the law was in the way of saving people's lives. Let's not let all that just jump back into law and be ruining our economy going forward. Let's check them all. And you wanted to take names. Well, one name on our list is a big gun. And he's at the New York Times. And he's really nasty. And he is a Nobel laureate. <laughs> he has a Nobel Prize. <laughs> you know, the funny thing, and, and uh, you're, you're much better educated about economists than, than I am, but it does seem like Krugman at one point was a much more understandable, reasonable uh, advocate for his position who kind of saw, you know, I, I, I have a friend who's uh, certainly, you know, was a big Obama supporter and he's, he's a Democrat, he's more on the left economically and so on. But I was talking to him the other day and he said, I believe in the market. I, I like free market. 
Jones. I think the marketplace should be listened to. I want, you know, he wanted regulations and different things to stop the marketplace from, you know, being too much, uh, giving too much wealth or, or somehow the, you know, whatever problems might arise. Um, and of course we could argue about that because oftentimes the, the problems that arise when you look under the hood, you realize this problem arised when these entrepreneurs who were getting wealthy doing something decided it was time for them to rent seek and to get the government to regulate things so that the people trying to catch up with them were pushed back by all the heavy regulation that only the big guys could afford to, to deal with. Um, and so regulatory capture of the government by big industries is a huge problem and happens all the time. And honest people on the left are very concerned about it. Uh, libertarians and, and free market conservatives, I think, constantly pointed out because what it, what it ends up being is you can have this regulatory regime and you can salute it and say, thank goodness we put some controls on runaway capitalism. But in essence, almost always what those regulations are is capitalism running away with the wealthiest, most powerful industries. Um, and it's not capitalism running away with them. They are capitalists who've now gotten in bed with government. And they're running over here in the halls of Congress to pass some law. And then over here in the halls of the Department of Labor or the EPA or what have you to pass new rules that work for them as the big guys and don't work for the little guy who's trying to get into the marketplace. So, um, but, but anyway, we digress a little bit because the real thrust of, of Krugman and uh, John Goodman uh, wrote a, a, a great op-ed in Forbes, just pointing out that this isn't, this isn't analysis and reasoned argument. This is Krugman calling anyone who doesn't agree with them a closet racist. And it just gets tiring to listen to people who, instead of arguing, you know, the merits of their position as if, hey, the public in the end will make a decision and I have some confidence in what I'm saying and I think they'll come my way. Instead, it's anyone who disagrees is evil and terrible. And it's constant straw men. Uh, Goodman pointed out he's not arguing with real economists. He's arguing with zombie economists who don't exist. And, uh, and, and you see that again and again. And then, of course, people like Krugman complaining that the, the atmosphere, the political atmosphere is so partisan and vicious. Well, why is it? It's partisan and vicious because people like Krugman call anyone who doesn't agree with them a racist. So, you know, I happen to think that a racist is a really not a good thing. It's a terrible thing to be. And nobody wants to be called that. And it's used, I think, most often in an attempt to silence that person and to discredit that person so you don't have to listen to their argument. I have a lot of confidence, and it may be kind of uh, the type of confidence Churchill had. Uh, wasn't it Churchill who said America always does the right thing after they've tried everything else? Um, or that I think I, I think it may have been him who said 
uh, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. But it, but there's, you know, there's a certain begrudging confidence I have in the public. Not that we always get it right the first time, but that if we keep being allowed to make decisions and make choices and debate and discuss and learn, we will get to the right position. If instead debates are ended with you're a racist or you're a jerk or you're a Nazi or you're a communist, unless those are actually true, they don't help in the debate. And frankly, sometimes deciding what the other person is isn't really that helpful anyway. Let's decide what their argument is, and let's decide whether it's a good argument or not such a good argument. And uh, a few moments ago, you gave a discussion of uh, we might call the bootlegger and Baptist theory of regulation, which uh, Bruce Yandel talked about, and public choice, basically public choice approach to what is going on when business and governments get together to make regulations and things like that. And now, Paul Krugman is well aware of all this stuff. He has to be. He doesn't mention that very stuff very often and instead he says that his enemies uh, are zombies who you know believe in this the simple-minded things but what you just said wasn't simple-minded is actually a sophisticated theory and uh, nevertheless he calls us zombies so maybe maybe in honor of uh, Krugman we should just call ourselves for one day all us zombies <laughs> I don't know I'm for it I'll tell you what um, zombies don't die too easily because they're already dead. And, uh, and there is something to living as if you were already dead with a certain degree of courage, with a certain degree of, let's say it, let's not left, leave stuff unsaid. Um, it's, it's the sort of attitude that leads to the American view of the First Amendment, which is that if we let people speak, sure, someone's going to say something that offends you. Someone's going to say something that's wrong. But because we all get to speak, we get to find out what's right. And we don't shut out solutions. And, um, and so, you know, these zombies, uh, Krugman better get his baseball bat and his guns and everything else because we're coming. And uh, all of us zombies. All of us free market zombies. Anyway. There you are. Of course, we're not zombies, but the ideas just don't die. And I don't think the left likes that very much. <laughs> well, I don't know. I have been. My grandkids like me to be a zombie from time to time. And they're getting older, so I may, I may lose my zombie status at some point. But right now, I think I do have it. Okay. There we are. <laughs> you have a final thought for the day? I guess my... Uh, my Final thought is uh, that people can get these commentaries and more information on all kinds of issues, term limits, uh, the draft, uh, what's happening in, in China with the CCP and the Uyghurs and Hong Kong and all kinds of things at thisiscommonsense.com. They can get our podcast at Stitcher and at SoundCloud. And uh, we're going to keep talking about how we make America more free, more accountable, uh, because, you know, this, this society is not going to maintain itself if we all leave it to somebody else. And I think, um, I think what we see on the good side in this terrible 
pandemic and it's it's and it everybody's feeling it because you know what is it 87 percent of the country or 90 percent is supposed to stay in place and and you know we're all a little stir crazy we need each other we're all in this together but it is when we realize that freely it's when we call on government to do the right thing and we call on business to do the right thing and we call on each other to do the right thing that we see all kinds of wonderful things happen people taking that extra step to help their neighbor businesses taking extra steps um and i i think that that strength is what will get us through this and i hope that people don't get to that knee jerk of we need a strong leader that just orders everybody. I, I hear so much talk about the few bozos who do something stupid, like have a party. There was a party in Maryland that the police broke up and they didn't need to break it up because there were more than 10 people there. There were underage people um, drinking, being given alcohol by someone who was 26. Uh, you know, it was just a mess. Well, look, there are idiots everywhere. You can't repeal idiocy. But if, if the rest of us have a little confidence in each other and, and ask people to do the right thing, I think we're going to come out of this okay. It's the, it's the only way to approach it because we're not going to order our way out of this. We're going to work our way out of this. And I think, I think we'll see in weeks ahead, I don't think we can continue this shelter in place you know, for months and months, the, the amount of damage uh, to the economy, to people's livelihoods. Um, and after all, you know, we need stuff to live. So it, it starts to affect our health and well-being as well. But I, I, think, I think attitude is important at this point. And, um, and having a little faith in your fellow man is justified. All you zombies.